you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Primary Medicine Podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Dimitri. The American Urological Association recently released a guideline for recurrent urinary tract infections. I want to go over. So the way I have structured this podcast is quite simple. I'll go through some definitions, a bit of context for recurrent urinary tract infections, and then I'll go through every single statement that the guideline makes and summarize it, talk about some practical aspects, and talk about how I plan to use it in my everyday practice. I will have a link to the actual guideline in the podcast description, and for people who have subscribed to our email, um, I'll send it with the email. It's probably a good idea to take a look yourselves, but if you don't have time, I'll do my best to summarize it. I think it's a good guideline. As any family physician knows, urinary tract infections are extremely common. You probably see a couple of them a week, depending on how many patients go through your clinic. 60% of women will experience at least one of these infections in their lifetime. That's a lot. For the more 40% of women who have multiple episodes, and of those, about 25% will have recurrent episodes. And I'll, I'll define what that means. So let's go with the definitions here. When I'm talking about a recurrent urinary tract infection, the way it's defined in the guidelines is, well, there's two definitions. The one I tend to use because I remember it better is you have three culture-positive infections within one year. They have to be culture-positive. You have to actually have proven with a culture that this is a UTI. They also define it as two culture-positive infections within six months. So you can use either definition. I remember the first one because it's just easier for me to think in year terms as opposed to month terms. That's definition number one. Definition number two is uncomplicated urinary tract infection because this guideline will specifically look at uncomplicated urinary tract infections. So what do I mean by uncomplicated? So it's specifically infections in women. If you're dealing with a man, it's already a complicated infection. Men don't tend to get infections. I mean, one infection in a lifetime, two infections may not be the, the worst thing in the world. But if they're having multiple infections, there's something else that's happening. Women, on the other hand, if they have an infection, it's considered complicated unless there's evidence of a couple of things. So is there any evidence of any anatomic or functional abnormality of the urinary tract? So does this woman have a renal calculus, a renal diverticulum, or even a neurogenic bladder? Is the person who has the infection immunocompromised? So people who have, you know, have transplants, take transplant medication, people with badly controlled HIV, people with badly controlled diabetes. If you're dealing with an immunocompromised patient, this guideline isn't really applicable to them. Are you dealing with somebody who has multi-drug resistance? You know, you do the urine culture, you know that everything except, except you know, piperacillin, tazobactam or something, and you, and you ask yourself, what do I do with this? Because I don't have access to that, those medications. This guideline is not for them. Uh, furthermore, if you're dealing with somebody who is pregnant, because of the increased risk of 
having an upper urinary tract infection, or I should say an upper tract infection in pregnant women, causing problems such as pyelonephritis, and down the line possibly hurting the baby and the mother, this guideline does not cover that. Okay, And the last definition, so we talked about uncomplicated UTIs, what recurrent urinary tract infections are. And the last definition is asymptomatic bacteriuria. This is a culture-positive patient who has no symptoms, specifically dysuria. Okay, so those are definitions, and the guideline will cover specifically those things. So let's start with the actual guideline and the actual principles. So principle number one. Clinicians should obtain a complete patient history and perform a pelvic examination in women presenting with recurrent UTIs. When you do a history, the one thing that is almost always diagnostic of a UTI is dysuria. Acute onset dysuria is a specific symptom. It's, it's also a sensitive symptom. So the lack of dysuria usually means you're not dealing with a UTI. It's actually more sensitive and specific because dysuria can be caused by other things, such as an STI, chlamydia gonorrhea. But if there is no dysuria, the likelihood of a UTI is very low. So when you're doing a history, that's the first question you ask if you're suspecting a UTI. Do you have dysuria and is it acute? Other symptoms are not as useful in terms of diagnosing this condition, but they include things such as frequency, urgency, suprapubic pain, and hematuria. But again, dysuria is the center here. When you're doing a history, you also always need to ask about signs that, that are suggesting of a complicated UTI, so fever and flank pain, which suggests pyelonephritis. You also need to ask about symptoms that suggests another type of infection, and not a UTI, such as vaginal itching or discharge, which can present with vaginitis. Okay, so dysuria, ask about flank pain, ask about fever, ask about vaginal itching and discharge. When you're doing, um, doing your evaluation, that's what I've been doing, that's what this guideline suggests. If you're dealing with a recurrent patient, you should, and you always ask how often and I always ask, and you should always ask as well, how many have you had in a year? Because if they had more than three, it's a good idea to have them come back or have them see their doctor for further exam. To see why, because there might be an atomic animality. These patients should actually have a pelvic exam, as it says in the guideline. Now, if they don't have recurrent UTIs, you don't need to do a pelvic, but if they do, somebody has to do a pelvic at some point. Maybe it's not you, because busy, but if it is your patient, you should follow up. If they're recurrent, you should ask about certain triggers. This is mentioned in the guideline. Is it sex? Is it that they're using spermicidal gels, which can cause UTIs? Is it during menstruations that is happening? Are they taking medications such as, you know, the SGLT1 inhibitors, which cause sugar accumulation in the bladder, you can increase the chance of UTI? Or do they have some kind of medical condition, which can explain why uncontrolled diabetes or immunosuppression. Okay, then you do a pelvic exam. What are you looking for in a pelvic exam? Very simply, you want to make sure there's no prolapse of the uterus or bladder because that could be a cause. 
uh, if they have symptoms of itching or discharge, you should do the swab of vaginitis. So when you're doing the exam, if it smells, you know, there's the bacterial vaginosis smell that you can smell sometimes, fishy odor. If the KOH test, potassium hydroxide test, the SWIFT test is positive, you have access to that in the clinic, consider you're doing a bacterial vaginitis. If you see a lot of thick cottage cheese-like discharge, consider it you're dealing with a fungal infection. And obviously look for evidence of dermatitis folliculitis. You don't need to do this in people who have no recurrent UTIs, if people have no further symptoms except dysuria. But if they have other symptoms, you should do a pump at some point, either that day or as follow-up. Okay. Now that's principle number one. Eventually, people with recurrent UTIs should get a pelvic exam to make sure there's no visible, abnormal anatomy causing the issue. Principle number two, to make a diagnosis of a recurrent UTI, clinicians must document positive urine cultures associated with prior symptomatic episodes. So that's a big thing. Just like strep throat, you need to confirm the diagnosis of UTI with a culture each time. I know uh, in a lot of times you may want to skip that step. See this to get a culture. But it's very much encouraged to get a culture. Culture and this ends up, and this person ends up having symptoms that persist. And so what happens is eventually not getting culture is going to cost time and possibly suffering for the patient. So get a culture. It's interesting that they don't really talk about the utility of your analysis. They say you should do it, but they don't specify if it increases the probability. They don't even specifically say you should do a dipstick. Now, I do a urine dipstick. And theoretically, if you're dealing with, uh, you have positive leukocytes and positive nitrites, the chance of UTI is very high. But it's not quite clear with this guideline whether they suggest even doing a dipstick. You should always do the culture, whether the dipstick is positive or negative. You know, I, I, I use this called, thing called the UTI score, where, which looks at three symptoms. Uh, symptom one, number one, dysuria. Symptom number two is leukocytosis. And symptom number three is positive nitrate. And you have two out, of, two out of three. Your likelihood of UTI is high. Three out of three is very high. One out of three is low. So back in the day, I used to not culture three out of threes, but based on this guy, I'll culture them. The other thing they mentioned here is that you know, you had a, you used to, well, we have this idea of a threshold for a bacterial growth in a urine being positive. So the threshold used to be 10 to the fifth colony forming units per mil. What they say is that this is based on really old evidence and these, they suggest having a lower threshold for a significant growth, that being 10 to the two colony, colony forming units per mil. If they're symptomatic, somebody comes in and they, they have positive nitrate, they have positive leukes, they have acute onset dysuria, you do the culture and then you know that, that, that you only have two to the three colony units per mil, they suggest, well, that's, that's still, that's probably significant. So the 10 to the 5 is was too strict according to them, and if you have symptomatic patient using a 10 to the 2 may be better. If you do the culture, and they talk about this and this, that, if you do the culture, you, and the culture is negative, 
they need to consider other causes of dysuria. That's why the culture is important, because the patient comes back and says, listen, I'm not better. Well, you don't know why he's not. Sure, he's not better. Is she not better because you gave the wrong antibiotic? Or is she not better because you're dealing with something like overactive bladder, interstitial cystitis, menopausal changes, calculus, fungal bacterial vaginitis, or an STI, or maybe even carcinoma in such of the bladder. So that's why the culture is important. Because when the patient comes back, we need to know what was it actually a urine infection. Okay, so that's principle number two. Principle number three. Clinicians should obtain repeat urine studies when an initial urine specimen is suspected for contamination with consideration for obtaining a catheterized specimen. Contaminations happen, and there's a couple ways you can decrease contamination, and they actually talk about them. So there's very good evidence that if you cleanse the urethra, you know, with a, with a iodine, with a provider, with a iodine chiffon or Usually, I usually have those at the clinic that improve specimen quality and reduce contamination. The other thing that you should tell your patients is that, well, really, two other things. You do, there's good, good evidence to suggest that you should never use initial urine stream. You discard that. You do midstream. That helps decrease contamination. But the second thing, third thing, sorry, you should do, you should tell your patient to do is, if female patients, they should spread the labia. Labial spreading is highly effective in reducing contamination. And I actually didn't know that. That's something that I'll start talking to my patients about. Just like if you're dealing with a man and you think they have a UTI, and if they have a foreskin, you tell them, pull the foreskin back, and then cleanse. Similar to women, move the, the labia, spread the labia out so there's less possibility that the bacteria in the labia end up on, in the urinary part. So again, spreading labia, using midstream urine, and cleansing the area before take, getting the sample is very effective. Remember that species that cause UTIs, you're dealing with E. coli mostly. Almost 80% of the time, you're going to be dealing with E. coli. Sometimes you can deal with Saprophyticus, with Klebsiella, with P. mirabilis. But often it's E. coli. If you have stuff such as Lactobacilli, Group B strep, Quagneg staph, uh, Staph aureus, likely it's a contamination. Often fungal, if you have some kind of fungal growth, like candida is a contamination, because they probably have an, an actual fungal infection that when they were urinating ended up in the pot, unless they're immunocompromised. Okay, so if it's E. coli, it's not a contamination. Staph aureus, it likely is. But there's ways to prevent contamination, as I mentioned. I'm not going to talk about using cystoscopy or a catheter to get a sample. Obviously, if you get into a point of of a abnormal normal symptoms in a patient and nothing's working and you can't get a good sample, then urology might make that decision. Obviously, you can't really do that yourself in the office unless you're equipped. Tip number four is cystoscopy and upper tract imaging should not be routinely obtained in the index patient presenting with a RUTI. Okay, so by definition, if they have recurrent UTIs, you shouldn't, first, you shouldn't go with a cystoscopy first. This should be used. This should be you should be doing this for complicated UTIs, but not recurrent. Again, not necessarily something helpful to help with the family doctors. Although, consider that if somebody has recurrent UTIs, you should send them to urology for assessment at some point. Point number five: Clinicians should obtain urinalysis, urine culture, and sensitivity with each 
symptomatic acute cystitis episode prior to initiating treatment in patients with RUTIs. So your analysis to them is useful. In some ways, they don't specify what they what, what they do say is that if you see epithelial cells on your analysis, likely you're getting contaminated. I to be frank with you, I, I do a dip, I do a culture, I don't do an analysis on every on every patient. I'm not convinced by the guideline that I should, but that's what the guideline says. However, the culture is a must. The culture is a must. And actually, there's good evidence for doing cultures because they were shown to decrease UTI-related hospitalizations and heavy antibiotics. So they, doing a culture, decreases the chance of your patient being sicker. So you should do a culture. Now, if you do ask for them to wait for the culture to be positive, before they take the antibiotics, or if the patient themselves decides to, just like strep throat, you give, you give them the option. Do you want to wait for a positive swab and take antibiotics then, or do you want to take them now and stop the antibiotics if it's negative? I, I give them that choice. Similar thing with the urinary tract infection. The only risk you have with that is that there's a smaller risk of, there's a bit of a risk increase in pyelonephritis if you do wait, because it can take up to two days for the culture to come back. This brings me to this, the point number six. Clinicians must may offer patient-initiated treatment, self-start treatment to select RUTI patients with acute episodes while awaiting urine cultures. And again, that's going back to the point that the patient may decide to wait before starting a treatment. So you give them the prescription, you tell them, well, if the culture is positive, I'll call you, start the treatment. Meanwhile, I'll give you something for the pain. So NSAIDs, naproxen, Aleve, Aleve slash Naproxen, or Advil may work. And some patients may want to wait. Give them the choice. I think that that's a fair thing to do. Okay, let's move on to, to point number seven. Clinicians should omit surveillance, urine testing, including urine culture, asymptomatic and symptomatic patients with RUTIs, recurrent UTIs. And point number eight, Clinicians should not treat asymptomatic bacteriouria in patients. The only population that may benefit from treatment of asymptomatic bacteriouria are pregnant women. Again, because, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, they are at higher risk for having upper tract infections, which can cause preterm labor, so on and so forth. However, the evidence, to be frank with you, is not very clear, but that's a theoretical risk that we see. Other people that may benefit from treatment of asymptomatic bacteriuria are patients that are going to undergo an invasive urinary tract procedure because the bacteria may end up somewhere they shouldn't be. And in, in fact, this is based on the idea that if you do treat as, asymptomatic bacteriuria, you do increase the risk for issues such as recurrence of symptoms or development of antibiotic-resistant organisms. What's interesting is they do mention that perhaps having asymptomatic bacteria may be uh, protect may protect you from developing UTIs. Perhaps the bacteria you have in your bladder are actually protecting you from getting the bad bacteria, just like your gut. Furthermore, the other thing that's, that's, that that you know really supports not treating asymptomatic patients 
with positive cultures is that they did a huge systematic review that showed that antimicrobial treatment of these patients does not appear to improve microbiologic outcomes, morbidity, or mortality. So forget about treating asymptomatic positive cultures unless they're pregnant or if you're urologist, you're probably not listening to this podcast unless they're going to undergo some kind of procedure. Number nine. That's where we get to the treatment part. Clinicians should use first-line therapy, so nitrofurantoin, TMP-SMX, fosamycin, dependent on the local antibiogram for the treatment of symptomatic UTIs in women. So where I live, in fact, a lot of places, SEPTRA has a high degree of resistance. So I I, I don't prescribe it unless I have an actual culture. So if I have the culture saying it's sensitive, then I prescribe it. If I don't have the culture, I usually go with something else, such as fosomycin or monuro. It's very convenient. It's, it's three grams. You take one dose. But beware that if, if you're using fosomycin, you should probably, when you do, when you fill on the, um, the culture request, you should ask, please assess for sensitivity to fosomycin because it's, it's a newer one, antibiotic in, in Canada anyways. It's been used in Europe for a while. So a lot of some labs, including my lab initially, don't don't test for it unless you ask. Try to avoid ciprofloxacin unless you're dealing with a complicated UTI, right? It's a huge issue with cipro and connective tissue problems, including problems of deorder, which can be deadly. So it's it's sort of the last resort. I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying it shouldn't be the first resort. Should not be the first resort. It's uh, it has its own issues and side effects. Point number 10, clinicians should treat recurrent UTI patients experiencing acute cystitis episodes with as short a duration of antibiotics as reasonable, generally no longer than seven days. Again, what you're doing here is you're balancing the risk of adverse events if you treat for longer or, or antibiotic failure if you treat for shorter. So the, what seems to be the best time is five to seven days. You should not leave longer than seven days. You should... Unless you're doing dealing with monitor, you should not you should consider not treating for shorter than five days. So five to seven days seems to be the sweet spot where you're balancing adverse reactions and antibiotic failure. Statement number eleven: In patients with recurrent UTIs experiencing acute cystitis episodes associated with urine culture resistant to oral antibiotics, clinicians may treat with culture direct parenteral antibiotics for a shorter course as reasonable. Generally, no longer than seven days. Okay, so this is not for family doctors. This is for specialists, people who work in a hospital. But yes, you have the right to use IV antibiotics if oral antibiotics are resistant. It's evidence-based. It works. Okay, we're getting close to the end here. Statement number 12. Following discussion of the risks, benefits, and alternatives, clinicians may prescribe antibiotic prophylaxis to decrease the risk of future UTIs in women of all ages previously diagnosed with UTI. So if they have recurrent UTIs, so proven by three cultures, antibiotic prophylaxis can be done, it it works. It can reduce the recurrence by 50 to 75%. There's a there's a, a, a lot of treatment regimens. Uh, they, they don't seem to have any superiority, except if you have some sensitivity on the bacteria. So obviously, if the urine culture says resistant to septra, then septra is not superior than microbit. So you can use SEPTRA once daily. You can use SEPTRA thrice weekly. That's interesting. So they, they, they talk about the thrice weekly regimen of SEPTRA, the 40 milligrams, 200 milligrams thrice weekly. 
You can use microbid. You can use Cephalex. The other thing is you can use fosamycin, 3 grams every 10 days. So it's less antibiotics. For longer, you only need to give it every 10 days. If sexual intercourse is the cause of their UTIs, you can give a prophylaxis important to sexual activity. So you do, you take a single dose of an antibiotic before or after sexual intercourse. And single dose could be septra, could be macrobid, or could be cephalax. So if you put somebody in prophylaxis, especially if it's daily prophylaxis, you should reassess how it's going after 12 months, if it's working or not. If it's not working, if you haven't sent it to urology, then you should. In fact, most of the time, urology will be the ones doing this, the prophylaxis. But uh, the issue is that if you do stop, there's good evidence that the UTI has returned to normal. So, fortunately, if you stop the prophylaxis, likely they'll have they'll have to restart it. Be aware of adverse events, macrobid. The issue with macrobid is there's risk of pulmonary peripheral neuropathy and hepatic toxicity. It's very rare, less than 0.01% of cases, but it exists. You should avoid it in elderly because the risks are higher. And especially you should avoid it if the creatinine clearance is below 30. Septra usually safe. Um, however, there's resistance to it. It also can cause gastrointestinal disturbances and some skin eruptions, including some really deadly ones. And some rare blood abnormalities suggesting you should probably do, you know, every six months some blood work. Ciprofloxacin should not be given. Prophylaxis, it has too many risks. And it's not a good idea. Number 13, non-antibiotic prophylaxis. So clinicians may offer cranberry prophylaxis for women with recurrent UTIs. This is great. I actually was skeptical that cranberries did anything for UTIs, but they work. They, the way that we think they work is that there's something in the, the cranberries that prevents the bacteria from actually being able to stick to the bladder wall. So when you pee, they get peed out. They can work as well as antibiotics in traps. traps. And it doesn't have to be juice specifically. Because juice is quite sugary unless you get unsugared cranberry juice. But holy crap, who drinks that? It's very bitter. You can use a tablet. The dosing is not clear, however, but it has to be daily, and it works. It can decrease UTIs by 50%. Another option is increased water intake. Um, so that only seems to work for women who are not getting enough water. But there's there are two studies, I believe, or one study that, sh- you know, a pretty decent study that showed that taking 1.5 liters of a day of extra water decreases the frequency of UTIs by around 50%. The last one is something called D-mannose. Uh, there were there were two trials that compared it to Septra. It seems to work almost as well as Septra. Uh, however, D-mannose is hard to find and may be expensive. In fact, you may have to order it online. It's a bit hard to dose, but it's an option. And I've used it in patients, and it's worked in one patient. It didn't work in the other one. So your mileage may vary here. There's a couple of things. Uh, I need to finish off here with prevention myths. So front front to back wiping does not seem to prevent UTIs. So, you know, fortunately, I've told a lot of people to do that because I thought it was true, but it doesn't seem to be true. It, I mean, you can wipe anywhere you want. It doesn't seem to affect anything. Pre or post coital avoiding, so having going to the bathroom before or after sexual intercourse doesn't seem to help. Uh, good news is that using tampon and douching doesn't seem to cause UTIs. Now, what you should do, no, but 
at least we know that it doesn't seem to cause or actually doesn't seem to prevent UTIs for that matter. So number 14, clinicians should not perform a post-treatment test of pure urinalysis or urine culture in asymptomatic patients. Okay, and unlike some ST, STDs, such as gonorrhea, you don't have to do a, a urine culture post-cure. That's good to know. I never did it, but the guidelines actually supports that. It says, okay, it's a good you didn't do it. Clinicians, number 15, clinicians should repeat urine cultures to get further management when UTI symptoms persist following antimicrobial therapy. So if a patient comes in and they still have dysuria, first of all, if you haven't done a culture, do it. Secondly, consider that there's other causes of dysuria, including STIs, vaginitis, so on and so forth. And the last Number 16, it's the last, truthfully, the last point here. In pairing and postmenopausal women with re recurrent urinary tract infections, clinicians should recommend vaginal estrogen therapy to reduce the risk of future UTIs if there is no contraindication to estrogen therapy. What they're saying is that vaginal estrogen therapy, so vaginal, not oral, can decrease UTIs in postmenopausal women or perimenopausal women that have symptoms, vaginal dryness and so forth. Oral ones do not reduce UTIs, it's the vaginal ones. Okay, so vaginal ones seem to work much better. Actually, they seem to work compared to oral ones. So if so, you have somebody coming in who's postmenopausal, you think it's the menopause causing this, you didn't have this before, they have it now, it's probably a good idea to see if they're already in oral estrogen to switch them on vaginal estrogen because it's better. It may work in prevention better. So that's the guideline. Things that I took out of it is always do a culture. And that's one thing I always do. Mostly I do the cultures, but not always, but I always do it. Prophylaxis. Cranberries work. Holy crap. I had no idea, but cranberries actually work. So it's good prophylaxis and maybe as good as antibiotics. Okay, so prophylaxis can work. And the other thing I really cut out of it is, is, is the estrogen. So uh, oral estrogen, you switch to vaginal and it can help with UTIs. Since I took care of changing my practice, I hope there's some things that will change yours. I think it's a really great guideline. Again, it, it will be posted in, in the uh, description of the podcast. And if you're subscribed to our newsletter, in the newsletter itself, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, all of you again, and we'll be back in the next one, two months. We're posting a bit less frequently. Things are getting really busy, and and we're having a bit of trouble keeping up with everything that's happening. But you know, every 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 one to two months, we'll get a podcast. Uh, I think these are very useful for me as well as for everyone. Uh, next time, we'll probably have Kevin or what he's coming. Thank you again. Hopefully, this helps.